Pastor Bobby mentioned that this service, this day, is a, it's a somber service, but also a joyful service. And I'll add to that that the death of Christ is where we see, where God reveals to us both his deep, deep love and his judgment, his justice. We see them both come together in this one event, the death of Christ on the cross for our sins, where in his love, he paid for our sins and satisfied his own wrath, his own judgment. Another thing we see at the cross is the humility of God. And if you have a Bible, I invite you to open to the passage I just read from Philippians 2. We're going to walk through it and maybe look at a text or two just outside of it as we walk through. The natural tendency of sinful humans is to create God in our own image. We talked about this some in Sunday school while we were talking about the second commandment. This has been mankind's tendency ever since Adam sinned in Genesis 3. One of the things this means is that we never create a humble God. The God that we create, the gods that we create, are proud because he or they are made in our image. But the good news is that the true God, the one true God, the only God, is not like us. And thanks be to God. He's humble. He's meek and lowly. And he humbled himself in our history to save us from our pride. That's the good news. God's humility, you see, drove him to become one of us, to take on our flesh, to become man and to bear our sins in his body on the cross. And just as the cross is the climactic event of world history, so humility, the humility that we see on the cross, is the crowning attribute of God. Thank God that he is not the product of human imagination, of man's making. Mankind never would have invented the humble God of Scripture. The humble God who came to earth as an embryo and went from the cradle to the cross and the form of a human, in the form of a servant or slave, a bondservant as the text says. He, he received his crown only after he took up his cross. The first part of Philippians 2 celebrates God's humility. And verses 6 to 11 have all the markings of an ancient hymn, a song, a chant, and in our Bible, verses 6, 6 to 11, probably in most of your Bibles, it's formatted to show the, the poetic 
nature of this text. This passage is often called the Carmen Christi, which is Latin for hymn of Christ, song of Christ. This song tells the story of the second person of the Trinity taking on human flesh and becoming a man, dying on a cross, rising from the dead and ascending to the right hand of the Father in glory. It's the story of the humility and then the exaltation of the Son of God, the eternal Son of God. The theme verse of this whole book, one, one of the potential theme verses of the book of Philippians, it, there, there are a number of potential theme verses, but one of them is arguably in the previous chapter, chapter 1, in verse 27. Only let your conduct or your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. If there's one thing that Paul wanted to get across after you read these few chapters in Philippians, of Philippians is let your conduct, your manner, your way of life be worthy, be in accord with the gospel of Christ to which you have been called. So do this, do this one thing. He starts out only let your. Do this one thing. Let the way you live be worthy of the gospel. Let your, yet let your life reflect the goodness of the gospel that saved you. In particular, let it reflect Christ and his manner of life. Paul's exhortation in this letter is, be like Christ, imitate Christ. Let the mind that was in Christ when he lived on this earth be also in you. While you live on this earth, let your conduct live up to Christ and his good news, his gospel. Why? Because of what the rest of verse 27 says. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear concerning you that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Did you hear echoes of Philippians 2 that I read earlier? I guess you could say Philippians 2 has echoes of chapter 1 that I just read to you. Paul's underlying concern is Christian unity in the gospel of Christ. So how do we live lives that are worthy of the gospel? That's what the first part of the verse exhorts us to do. But how do we do it? Paul says it's by living in unity with one another, by standing firm together in one spirit, by striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel. Those are Paul's words and ideas right there. Paul continues his theme of unity in chapter 2, but he gets even more specific. He indicates that this unity manifests itself, it shows itself above all in humility. Unity among believers is only possible where there is 
humility among those believers. Humility is the only pathway to unity. In verse 2, Paul exhorts the Philippians to make his joy complete. Fill it up. Fill up my joy. Help me out here by dwelling in unity. Be like-minded, he says. Have the same love. Be of one accord. Be of one mind. Then in verses 3 and 4, Paul tells them how to do this. He describes what Christian love and Christian unity look like on the ground in real life, day to day, week to week. They look like humility. Let me reread verses 3 and 4, which set the stage for the Christ hymn. In verses 6 to 11, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. The Christian life, we could call it the Christ-like life, is a life of humility from beginning to end. And we, we don't just learn this from Paul. Paul didn't make this up. We learn it from Jesus in his kingdom manifesto. The Sermon on the Mount is the kingdom manifesto of our king. It lays out what, what the Christ-like life, Christ life looks like. Lots of L's there. And do you remember the very first thing that Jesus says in that foundational sermon? The bottom of the foundation. Blessed are the poor in spirit, he says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Being poor in spirit means being humble. According to Jesus, the blessedness of the Christian life hinges on humility. If you're not characterized by humility, you're fundamentally going to be not blessed. Paul describes what humility looks like in Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Humility is having a lowliness of mind. Humility is counting others more significant than yourself. Humility is putting the interests of others before your own. When you exercise this kind of humility, you imitate God. You don't just imitate godly humans, though that's true as well. You also imitate, first of all, God himself. Humility is what the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit practice toward one another. And their eternal fellowship, the three persons of the Trinity, have never done anything out of selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, each one has always put the interests of the other two before his own in a way as they glorify each other. And humility is also what God exercises toward you. Think about that. God became man and went to the cross because he was looking not only to his own interests, which he could have done, 
but also to yours. That's Paul's logic in the first part of Philippians 2. He's not exhorting us toward humility in a vacuum. He's not just telling us, be humble. He's telling us to humble ourselves because God has humbled himself. You must become humble, a humble bondservant, a humble slave, to use Paul's language, because God became a humble bondservant. You must empty yourself because God emptied himself. You must take up your cross because God took up his cross. You serve a humble God. And if God humbled himself, how much more should you humble yourself? If humble servanthood is good enough for God, it's good enough for you. Paul says in verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, remember up in verse 2, Paul used that word mind twice. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded. It's actually a verb. We could translate it, fulfill my joy by thinking the same way. Having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Being of one mind. Again, it's a verb, a participle there. Being of one mind. Being like-minded. Two times. Paul uses the same word, same verb in verse 5 when he says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, the mind I want you to have is the same mind that Jesus had when he was on the earth. It was a mind of humility, infused with humility. That's what you'll find when you read the story of Christ. And then in verse 6, Paul launches into the, to the hymn, the Christ hymn, who, being in his very nature God, did not consider equality with God. When tr the translation I read is, says something to be grasped, uh, Another one is as something to be used for his, to his own advantage. When, when Paul says that Jesus was in the form of God, he's saying that before Jesus uh, ex existed as a man, he existed in eternity as God. He existed before he became a baby in Mary's womb. And, and in that existence, he was and still is today, equal with God for all eternity. Equal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Even though Jesus existed eternally in the form of God, he did not regard his equality with God the Father and the Spirit as something to be wielded to his own, his own gain, his own advantage. You see, Jesus never used his godness for his own gain. He never played his God card as a way of trumping the evil that was done against him as maybe a way to escape it prematurely. Even though he was God, and, and, he, and he never gave up his divinity, by the way. He was always God. He didn't empty himself of his godness, his deity. Even though 
He had existed forever as the second person of the triune Godhead. Jesus never used his equality with God as a, you know, sort of ace in the hole. He he, he didn't grasp after his godness for personal gain. To get him out of a tight spot. Or to get his way. Verse 7, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Some translations begin verse 7 by saying something like, he made himself nothing, or he made himself of no reputation. But, but I think the, the New King James and the ESV get the translation precisely accurate. He emptied himself. When we translate it that way, emptied himself, poured out himself, we can hear the echo of Psalm 53, which we've already read together. And it's printed in your liturgy. Isaiah 53 is is the famous passage where Isaiah predicts the suffering and death of the Christ, the suffering servant on behalf of, in the stead of, in the place of his people. Paul knew this passage well, of course. And here in his Christ hymn, Paul uses many of the words and phrases and concepts from that servant song that we read responsively from Isaiah 53 and even the last part of Isaiah 52. Paul echoes Isaiah 52 and 53 in about 10 different places throughout Philippians 2. The first echo comes here in verse 7 where Paul says that Jesus emptied himself. Verse 7 is an echo of Isaiah 53, 12, which says that he poured himself out unto death. I think it's the fourth line or so from the bottom in the handout. Isaiah 53, 12 envisions Christ pouring himself out unto death. And here in Philippians 2, Paul says that Christ indeed emptied himself or poured himself out even unto death. So so why does Paul echo Isaiah's famous prophecy? Because Paul wants to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah's song of the suffering servant. He has his own song to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah's song. Jesus is that servant. Jesus is the substitutionary atonement that Isaiah envisions. Jesus is the one who pours himself out and suffers and dies for his children, his people. Later in Philippians, Paul even applies this same language. We didn't read it, but he he applies the same language in the same passage to himself. Look down in verse 17 of of chapter 2. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and I rejoice with you all. He was glad and he rejoiced in being able to suffer alongside Christ in union with Christ and to pour himself out even as Christ poured himself out. Paul modeled his, his own life and ministry. It was modeled Christ and his humility, his emptying of himself. Because Jesus poured himself out for his people, Paul 
would let himself be poured out for others, for the brethren. And so if humble sacrifice was good enough for Jesus, it was good enough for Paul. People of God, humility is emptying yourself for the sake of others, for the benefit of others. It is pouring yourself out in the interest of others, for, for others' interests, rather than your own, instead of your own. Verse 8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Isaiah 53 says, The suffering servant poured his life out unto death. Paul adds even death on a cross. Jesus Christ did not die on the cross just to be a good example of humility. That's part of it. But he submitted to death on the cross in the first place, primarily to take upon himself the curse of sin and death that belonged to you and to me. He died on the cross in the place of sinners, Isaiah says. On the cross, Jesus became sin, as Paul will say in a different book of the, of the New Testament. He became our sin. At the end of 2 Corinthians 5, Paul writes that. If he had not done this, you would still be dead in your sins. You would still be a bondservant, not of righteousness, not of Christ, but of sin and death and hell and Satan. But the gospel of Isaiah says in verse 12 of Isaiah 53, for he poured out his life unto death and he was numbered with the sinners. You can read this in the bulletin. And he bore the sin of many and he took it upon himself for the sinners on behalf of the sinners. He took your place, took your death so that you wouldn't have to face eternal death. He was numbered among the sinners so that you would not have to be numbered among the sinners forever. He bore the sin of the many so that the many, the elect, for whom he died would not have to carry their sin with them all the way to hell and bear it there forever. Jesus encountered God's wrath for you while you were a sinner and he was not. So that you would not have to encounter God's wrath forever. Paul puts it this way, as I said in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake God made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin. The sinless one became sin so that, Paul says, in him we might become the righteousness of God. The sinless one became sin so that sinners could become righteous before God. On the cross, Jesus substituted himself in your place. On the cross, Jesus satisfied the wrath of God 
that was coming down and headed your way with nothing to stop it apart from Christ. That's what John and Luke and Paul mean when they say that Jesus is the propitiation for your sins. On the cross, Christ averted God's wrath from you to himself. In his death on the cross, he absorbed the condemnation and judgment that you and I deserved. On the cross, he who was without sin became sin. The Father treated Jesus truly as a sinner so that he could treat you as a righteous son of God. Finally, we come to verses 9 to 11 in Paul's song. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul connects verses, verse 8 to verse 9 with a therefore at the beginning of what I just read. So we can ask, why has God exalted, highly exalted Jesus and given him a name that is above every name? As verse 9 says, well, the answer is back in verse 8 because there's a therefore pointing us back to verse 8, which says, because Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So his humble obedience is the basis for his high exaltation. God highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the highest name. Because Jesus humbled himself through death on a cross in obedience to his Father. We see in these verses a great truth that, that really runs all the way through Scripture. Death to self always gives way to glory. True glory only ever comes on the other side of self-sacrifice, self-denial, self-death, death to self. For Christ to be highly exalted by his Father, for Christ to be given the name that is above every name as the God-man, as the God in human form, he first had to die. Because death always precedes glory. Glory's foundation is death. There's no way around this. You can't circumvent it. There's no shortcut. There's no other path. There's only one road to true glory. And it's the road named death. In verses 10 and 11... Paul uses language from a different part of Isaiah, chapter 45. In the first part of the, of the Christ hymn, you know, we heard echoes from 52 and 53, but now he, he, he draws from Isaiah 45, where the Lord is making the point that he is the only God. And he doesn't share his glory. He's a jealous God. He says, 
for I am God and there is no other. And then he says in the next verse, verse 23 of Isaiah 45, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall swear allegiance to me. Did you hear that at the end of Paul's hymn? Astoundingly, in Philippians 2, 10 and 11, Paul takes these words from Isaiah 45 that I just read and he applies them to Jesus. Remember, they were. think of the, the implications of that. In, in Isaiah 45, these words applied to God, to Yahweh, to God alone, he says, only to me. And yet now Paul is saying they apply to Jesus. Isaiah 45 says that every knee will bow only to Yahweh. And now Paul is saying that every knee will bow to Jesus. And so one of Paul's main points here at the end of the Carmen Christi is that Jesus is God in the flesh. What is true of Yahweh is true of Jesus. God says in Isaiah that he will not share his glory with anyone. And yet here he is sharing it with Jesus. This must mean that Jesus is God. And of course he is. On the last day, everyone will stand before the throne and confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, the eternal Lord, the Lord God. Every believer and every unbeliever, every angel and every demon, everyone, everything will bow the knee to King Jesus one day. Some will bow the knee in terror and dread. Many others, the many, will bow the knee in praise and worship and thanksgiving and joy eternal. Everyone will bow the knee and then enter into their eternal life or eternal death. If you were God, would you do what God did? Would you do what Jesus did for you? Would you join yourself to your creation that hated you? Become a bondservant and humble yourself all the way to the point of dying a shameful and painful death on a cross. Do you have it in you? Is it one of your attributes? If you were God, in other words, would you be humble? Would one of your attributes be humility? The God of Scripture is a humble God. He's not humble even though He is God. He's humble because He is God. Humility is of the very essence of God. God wasn't acting contrary to his nature by sending Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, was not acting contrary to his nature when he took on our flesh and humbled himself on the cross. 
It's who he is. Your God doesn't only think of his own interests. He also thinks of yours. The God of Scripture is a God who endured death for sinners at enmity with him. Jesus didn't die for you even though he is God. He died for you because he is God. It's perfectly in line with his character. It is who he is. If you want to know who the Christian God is, if you want to, if you want to glimpse into his character and nature, the God of Scripture, then look first and look always to the cross of Christ. Never take your eyes off the cross because as soon as you do, you've lost sight of the God of the Bible, the God of the Christian faith, the only true God, the incarnation and death of the Son of God reveals the true nature and true character of the triune God. The Christian God died on a cross for his people. He humbled himself and became obedient to death on a cross. Augustine once said, God has humbled himself and is man still proud? How is it that God humbled himself and we still exalt ourselves? How is it that God became nothing and we still act arrogantly and talk arrogantly and think of ourselves far more highly than we ought? How is it that God emptied himself and we are still full of ourselves? How is it that God looked after our interests rather than his own only and we still act out of selfish ambition and conceit? How is it that God did not use his godness for his own advantage and we still elevate ourselves above others? God took up his cross and he endured death on it for you. And now he is, he is calling you, he's calling us to take up your cross, our cross, and die to ourselves for the sake of Christ. Brothers and sisters, you are the body of Christ. bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus, your Lord and your God. And so I exhort you to go and imitate your God in your thoughts, in your mind, and in your speech, and in your relationships, in your friendships, in your marriage, in your home, and in the workplace. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit. In humility, count others more important, more significant than yourselves. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others.
Let's pray and ask for God's help in doing this. Oh, Father, you have given us a wonderful example in the life and in the death of our Savior. And you have given us his spirit whose work is to conform us into that image, into the image that we see when we meditate on the life and death of our Savior. And so we ask you again to accomplish that in us. Accomplish your good purposes, your will in us and truly conform us into the image of your humble Son and our humble Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.